0: All right, we're going to do it the scan away. I'm going to suck your brain dry. <laughs> this
1: is the Mars Magazine Podcast. My name is Adario Strange, and this week, as you might expect, we're going to wrap up the year talking about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And to do that, or to help us do that, we have uh, one of my favorite people that I've ever heard of uh, podcast. That's Kofi Outlaw from ComicBook.com. What's up, Kofi? Hey, what's going on? So, Kofi joins us on a very special day, because we're recording this just, I would say, maybe 30 to 40 minutes after the world found out that uh, Carrie Fisher, uh, also known as Princess Leia from the original Star Wars film, has just passed away at the age of 60 in Los Angeles. And I think we kind of, you know, most fans kind of had a head up that this might be coming because she had a heart incident and I think it was a heart attack on a flight, uh, on Friday and she was taken into intensive care. And now, uh, yeah, so she passed away from her, uh, I guess from her heart ailment. And, um, there's nothing but love right now flowing, you know, in the geek universe on the internet. I, yeah, I'm curious to, about what you think. Like, I feel like kind of in the same vein as um, the woman who played opposite Harrison, F- Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones. I feel like she was kind of like the sci-fi equivalent of her, and I'm forgetting her name. She's a great...
0: Oh, I think her name is Margot... Uh, let's just see. We have the internet. Raiders of the... <laughs> oh, no, it's Karen Allen. Her name right. is Karen Allen, yeah. I'm sorry. She plays Mar- Mary Maryn Ravenwood in in Indiana Jones.
1: Yeah, so I feel like uh, Carrie Fisher was kind of like this early... At least in the 70s, she was kind of like this almost like a feminist icon, even though, yes, we later had Slave Leia, and that's maybe the, a source of controversy for some. I mean, she was talking back to uh, Harrison Ford and uh, just really, I mean, she was really, I mean, she was one of the most colorful women, you know, in a sci-fi action film that I had ever seen. I mean, what, what, what's your biggest memory of her?
0: I mean, I got to say, I mean, for me, it was, being a kind of a child of the 80s, it was the Star Wars role but um as i've been sitting here i've been kind of going back and i was just publishing a piece on some other roles she's had over the years and i think after star wars i think i was i don't think i noticed how many times she kind of popped up in other places that were equally as funny or iconic um just for off the top of my head it's just she popped up in in things like family guy where she plays uh peter griffin's boss angela you know what i mean oh
1: right 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 right. yeah
0: and she's in like austin powers she's in that famous scene in austin powers with dr evil where he kind of tells his whole crazy childhood story and she's like the family therapist trying to get him and his son together like she was actually really really funny is what i kind of came to the conclusion of she was actually a really funny kind of comedian and um, did a lot of great work. But I think for me, yeah,, uh, and so many other kids, I, I grew up in the eighties when seeing Empire Strikes Back and you know, Return of the Jedi and Star Wars, particularly broadcast on Fox in like the holidays around times like now, she was such an icon. And, you know, yeah, I mean, not to get too gross, but I was a young boy. And, you know, that slave <laughs> bikini helped to make me a man in some ways, like so many boys of the time, because that right. was the first time you saw something even in a child adventure. And you were like, whoa, what is right. this? You right. Know? right. right. And so, yeah, I mean, Carrie Fisher helped man me out. So, <laughs> there
1: you go. Yeah. And I mean, again, the thing that really stood out for me was how I, I feel like if they were if let's just if we had some time machine. And the original trilogy was happening right now. And, you know, I think and if women had maybe more status in, I mean, they're still fighting right now. But if they had as much status as they do now, maybe we might see a standalone. Because I feel like the banter between Han Solo and Princess Leia was pretty much, I mean, it was like you said, it was the comedic timing and the chemistry. I could watch just an entire film with just Han Solo and Leia, just, you know, throwing the one-liners back and forth. So, yeah, so she's dead at 60, uh, December 27th, uh, this morning. She is credited with appearing in over 90 films, writing seven books. Uh, she was married to Paul Simon. Uh, one of her most recent books, uh, The Princess Diarist, uh, she says that she was in a relationship with her uh, co-star, Harrison Ford, uh, briefly while they were filming, which is interesting. I'm sure there'll be more uh, chatter about that in the days to come. Um But, you know, I think what one of the, you know, not to, and we're going to get into, uh, you know, Carrie Fisher a little bit more, but just to kind of talk about her death in context of uh 2016 and pop culture. I mean, the big meme right now is, you know, come on, 2016, you know, give us a break. I mean, we just keep getting hit with these big celebrities passing. I mean, we, you know, every year has that kind of, oh, you know, here are the people who passed away. But I'm going to just really quickly just just mention some of the people who passed away this year to give everyone a sense of just how much talent we lost this year. Uh, we lost Prince. Um, and we can't mention Prince without Vanity, who we also lost this year. Just
0: stop right there. You yeah. can stop right there.
1: I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and we lost David Bowie, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, Alan Rickman. Um, for those who may not recognize the name, you'll know his face for sure. He was um, the... The evil guy, the the main uh, antagonist in Die Hard, the original Die Hard. And, of course, more recently, uh, he was in the Harry Potter series. Musically, we lost Fife. We also lost, uh, let's see, Glenn Fry, Back to actors, we lost Gene Wilder. Uh, Anton Yelkin, who is known for being Chekhov in the new series of Star Wars films. Uh, the Brady Bunch, we lost Florence Henderson, Robert Vaughn, the man from uncle for those old school fans of spy movies, uh, or spy te- television series. Uh, we lost comedian Gary, Gary Shanling, uh, Alan Thick, Uh, let's see, Ron Glass, who is well known among sci-fi fans for being in the uh, Firefly series and older school fans will know him from Barney Miller. Uh, we lost, uh, well, this is kind of maybe a little, maybe not in the same company, Zsa, Zsa Gabor who I would say maybe is like the original Kardashian, some might call her. That's fair. Yeah. And then just a couple of days ago, we lost George Michael, who, you know, I got to tell you, I was going through some of his uh, discography, and I didn't realize I was such a big George Michael fan. I mean, I like a lot of his stuff. And so he just passed. And so this year is just like, and we still have, what, three days left. Again, it's a sad event that she's passing. But I mean, kind of like one of the quips that's being passed around is, okay, let's all just stay home. And calm down and whatever, do whatever we do, you know, in a very quiet way. Because this is like, people are starting to get get a little freaked out that so many people are passing away in one year.
0: It's very superstitious.
1: Yeah. So, 2016, hopefully it will come to a close without much more uh, sad news. We'll dive back into Carrie Fisher in a very special way. uh, Because... This is going to be a spoiler-filled episode. We're going to talk spoilers that will kind of lead back to where we started uh, with the pod. So, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Um, this is basically, I think, the first standalone film uh, in the Star Wars saga. And I think that alone gives it kind of like its biggest challenge as far as living up to the legacy of the originals, beating out the um subsequent prequels which are often harshed upon and uh living up to the most recent um the force awakens which was an outstanding success even though some people feel that it was kind of like a retread of the original i count myself among them um so what do you think i mean just like before we get into the the nitty gritty i mean just in general like how many times have you seen it you know did it leave a good impression like what was as just as a fan
0: I think for me, I'm I'm in the kind of camp of people who found it to be kind of a mixed bag. I don't know if that's because it's just still fresh and I have to take some time and kind of re-see it and let the hype pass and do that whole nine yards. Um, but for me, I was kind of thinking, yeah, I'm, a, I'm in the mixed bag. I'm in the camp of people who think it it starts off kind of wonky, but then kind of pulls together and delivers this kind of finale that showcases some of the best Star Wars action that we've seen and succeeds in kind of keeping you on the edge of your seat at the end for essentially this kind of violent heist slash war movie and really kind of delivering that ending. But I also agree with the people who point to a lot of the problems that run throughout the movie but are are very apparent in the beginning third or beginning half, arguably, which are things like, you know, it, it's kind of almost like Nolan-esque when we jump all there's so many jumps and cuts to different places we meet so many different people, but do we don't necessarily really meet them or get to know them? Mm. Um, which makes it hard to kind of find a central character in this. I think Jin Erso, the central character isn't well done in the same way that like Ray is in the force awakens. And so she's kind of this blank slate that it, it makes the what makes the movie hard, I think is a lot of revolving around this character that you don't really kind of get under the skin of or know, or, or more importantly form this kind of, bond with where you're rooting for her essentially what Rogue 1 kind of does and plays and I argue this about these new Star Wars movies that they're doing in general is it kind of they've kind of gotten obsessed with this idea of the force being a character almost <laughs> that all of this stuff is the will of the force and so we're watching the dominoes fall according to how the force wants it and it's supposed to be cool because you know these are the things it, it's this larger destiny at work it's not just these character actions and stuff And that's cool and that's fine if you want to do that, but you can't sacrifice character because I would argue that what makes the original Star Wars or what is now known as A New Hope so good and so iconic is that heroic journey. It is believing you could be Luke or Han or Leia and go from these kind of relatively obscure beginnings to this heroic ending with the medals and the praise of the galaxy because you've saved it and all that stuff. That hero's journey is so important and it's just kind of utterly missing from rogue one. Uh, we'll get into spoilers about the end, I'm sure, but they try to pull that out in the end and say, yes, you know, this is all a heroic kind of sacrifice movie, but this is, it doesn't feel like saving private Ryan or something. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And I mean, it seems like they got off to a good start with Jin Urso. uh, in the beginning when they kind of show her as a child and kind of here's her early struggle and backstory as her father is, I almost want to call him kind of like, um, like the sci-fi Oppenheimer, uh, you know, creating the atomic bomb, the ultimate weapon. And, you know, like, like what, you know, what would the daughter of the, of, of, uh, Oppenheimer do, you know, in, you know, in just contemporary times. So, I mean, um, yeah, so they got off to a good start, but then just, Okay. So let me just get into the filmmakers and that will kind of help us unpack this. So it's directed by Gareth Edwards, who, uh, my first, um, awareness of him was, uh, the breakout film Monsters, which was kind of like an indie science fiction film that I felt dealt a lot with kind of mood and shadow. And it just, it was, it was, I, I liked it as a small film. And then he took on Godzilla, which was, Mixed, mixed opinions on that. You know, I didn't dislike it. It was, it was enjoyable to me. And the film was written, um, was a, a team of writers, um, Chris White, yeah, Gary Witta, John Knoll. But the one I want to talk about is Tony Gilroy, who is most well known for his work on the Born Identity series, Michael Clayton, and uh, also Nightcrawler, which oddly, like a lot of people haven't seen Nightcrawler. Amazing film. Tony Gilroy kind of injects this whole thing with that whole are you following? Don't go out for popcorn, don't you know, don't look down at your drink for like, you know, a minute or whatever, whatever you're doing, make sure you keep your eyes locked on the screen like at all times because if you miss one little thing, that little thread could be the plot point that will help you understand what happens whatever 30 minutes later. I found the film very hard to follow. I feel like that kind of ties in with the Jin Erso thing because they, they try to like introduce all these really cool characters. And I have to say, just to go down the actor list, this is an incredible cast. Um, as we mentioned, Felicity Jones as Jin Erso, uh, Diego Luna as, uh, Cassian Andor, who's, uh, I think most people would know him, at least indie fam, indie film fans would know him from, uh, E2 Mama Tambien. Let's see, Donnie Yen. Uh, that my who has my favorite line at least from the trail. I don't remember. Yeah, I think I saw it in the. Yeah, it's in the film. Uh, all is as the force wills it. Right? Is that?
0: Do I have that right? I can't say for sure if it <laughs> made it into the film because there's. I mean, we're about to talk about this eventually, but yeah, there's so much that got that was in trailers and such. I don't know yeah. if it's actually in the film. I know his repeated mantra is in the film. I am with the force. The force is with me. Right. I'm one of the force. Yeah. I don't know if he actually said that line. I can't, I cannot remember.
1: Yeah. I just remember seeing the trailers, seeing him say, you know, with no weapon, no lightsaber, uh, he's only force sensitive. I think we all knew that by then. And he's just, you know, know, all is as the force wills it. I, I just, I got so excited when I saw that in, uh, in the trailer, uh, Ben Mendelsohn plays Orson Krennic. Um, fans of, uh, I don't know what we call it, over the air TV, you know, golden age of TV series, uh, he's in, um, oh god, bloodline, um, he's just amazing in bloodline, uh, Forrest Whitaker, the man, Forrest Whitaker is, uh, Saul Guerrera, who, Interestingly, has his own breathing apparatus in this film. So it's almost kind of like this light, dark. He's maybe the light version of, of Vader, even though he's very sinister in this film. Uh, Riz Ahmed is also in the film. And he maybe m- many of you out there know him from The Night Of. He was just did a, an amazing job in uh, that series on HBO recently. And, of course, uh, Jimmy Smits, not a big fan, but he was in it too. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen who is the father of Jin Erso, and he is essentially Oppenheimer. He is the guy who, uh, what he creates drives essentially the ultimate weapon that drives most of the films that we've seen in the Star Wars universe. I mean, there are, you know, novels and comics, and I think there's the animated series. But I mean, you know, what we know on screen is essentially kind of all tied back to his character in many ways. So, back to, you know, just how this was all laid out. I mean, did it seem too convoluted? Did, did it seem like they were trying to maybe give us too many characters in this ensemble uh, cast? I
0: I don't know if it's too many characters. I think that there was just something lost in... here's Okay, uh, there's two ways I approach this. The one is to look at it and say there was just something lost in the balance of kind of screen time for some characters over others. Like, uh, I feel like I... Even though I only get sketches of them, I know enough about Bayes, Malbus and Chira at i you know, the fact that I even know their names is good. <laughs> That's huge. Um, yeah, it's huge in this movie. And like I got to know them enough that I knew kind of the story without the story in the sense that this could be a standalone chapter of their story. But if later on they're introduced in a in a cartoon series or in a standalone or something like I would have enough foundation to be interested in them and like them. And I actually cared about them in this movie and what happened to them. I cared about those scenes of like their fate. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. But do, do you think a force sensitive character,
0: is that a cop out? Is that cool? Like how'd that hit you? I think it was, I, I actually think I agree with some people that who say that because you feel like you responded to these two, that they're almost out of place in this movie. Mm. Um, Because what I thought was weird about it is when you watch a new hope, like, the Jedi are a myth, right? Like nobody really believes them mm. uh, in them anymore. It's the same kind of thing in The Force Awakens. Uh, it's when they're not around for this period of time, they fall back and become myth. And that's like a whole part of A New Hope is unpacking is this stuff really true? And that's Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan's whole point is no, this is not myth. This is true in kind of educating us that the Force is a real thing. Yeah, I forget about that part. Yeah, that that's huge. Yeah, in this, Pete, the fact that Jin has like a Kyber crystal from a lightsaber and knowledge of the Force, and that Chirrut has is a Force sensitive and all this stuff, it kind of feels a little out of place. I, mean, I understand why they do it for these kind of brand recognition reasons and fan service reasons, but it's out of place. I mean, the real era we were kind of led to believe of the New Hope era is that. There are no Jedi. They are gone. And and the force is very much a kind of uh, not a reclusive, but like um, recessive for, you know, a recessive presence in this universe universe. Mm. It's all kind of the military. And that's why it's such work to pull Luke back into this Jedi training and to bring that back is such a big deal because it's been so diminished and gone. So having now force sensitives running around, not just in Rogue One, but in like Star Wars Rebels, there's two Jedi and a bunch of force sensitives and all that stuff. You know, the Jedi had to still be around. We know that Obi-Wan's living proof, but it does feel a little out of place because you would think this would be the movie about how did the people who didn't have access to the force or, or knowledge of that, how did they kind of get through the struggle against this massive darkness?
1: Like, I guess we're getting a little bit away from the cast, but just to talk about the universe building, I I, I think this is one of the first times I've seen where they hop from planet to planet and they actually name the planets, and that was kind of cool. But it still felt like in you know in the TV world, I think they have this term called bottle episodes. Um, I think I might have the term wrong, if that's the right term, good, but it's basically an episode that's written in kind of one room, and it kind of helps save money, and it allows you to kind of maybe get a little bit more theatrical with the dialogue, and allow the actors to kind of really show off their chops, and it just you know allows you to maybe get a little bit more complicated with the interactions, and even though we kind of planet-hopped in this film, I feel like it was kind of almost like a bottle episode, it
0: felt small, is that... Did you get that at all? Is that just me? I think – yeah, I see. I think I agree with you on that. Um, I think you're kind of – yeah, you're calling like a bottle episode. I think I would spin it a little bit more to say – and this is a problem, so just reel me back in if I go too far out on this. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's a problem in Star Wars universe and in Marvel and in DC right now is that because of these shared universes, things are planned a lot differently. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of movies are now – basically pilot episodes of a TV season. And they do what pilot episodes do. They give you, you know, brushstrokes of all the major characters and what the major kind of conflict and premise is, but they leave the door open for a whole season of development. And kind of what I feel like in this film is that we meet all these people, but there's kind of, they kind of stuck to this pace of telling this, like you said, this very bottled focused story, which is made really convoluted because it really is just a heist. It's really get to this place and get this thing and get out of there. Um, But they made it more convoluted than that. But um, what do you do is they've left the door open so that we can learn more about these characters later. And I think I would argue I point to Jin Erso as the biggest telltale sign of this. Because when you go back and you look at the first teaser and some early footage of her in her character, there's a different character there, right? Like – The first teaser is Saul Gerrera talking to her, seemingly talking to her in voiceover, saying, like, if you fight this, if you do this, if you go into this war, like, what are you going to become? And there's this whole kind of meditative thing to the first trailer that's about what's the cost of war and what does it do to people and all that stuff. And you can see how Cassian's character was meant to kind of carry that and reflect that. Right. Mm -hmm. He's because his whole thing with the sniping of Galen is about to be is supposed to be the story about what is war doing to him. And, like, what is it kind of making him do? And he's supposed to have this redemptive arc. Well, Jin's supposed to be this, like, badass who won't listen to anybody and kind of, you know, plays by her own rules. And how she kind of steers that towards a more noble goal was obviously supposed to be her character arc. I mean, there was that one where you were talking about the line that made you get goosebumps in the early trailers. Well, the one for me that did was when she kind of looks at the – at Mon Mothma and the kind of the Rebel Alliance commanders and she says, you know – this is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel when they're asked, <laughs> basically, like, "What the hell is your problem?" She, that's what she says. She's like, oh, "This is a rebellion, right?" Well, I rebel. Right. And right. you could tell. And now, in the finish cut, though, she just is kind of like, "Yeah, why do you want me?" Right. You know.
1: Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. I feel. I, I did hear that. That that was in the trailer, but that didn't seem to make it into the film.
0: Yeah, and it and there's a lot of other little hints that there was some other story that got told before you know, recuts, reshoots, and and revisions left this story open. And I feel like Jin Erso is somebody that like I won't be surprised if we find out that there's going to be some other kinds of spin-outs or she appears as in one of the animated series, either Rebels or some other series to come or something, and we learn more about her down the line, or in other characters that people obviously attach to, like K2SO, Cheer It and Baze. Like I feel like it was just left open. Because this is a, now a universe, right? Yeah. So we don't have to do everything in the pilot episode. We can come back and, you know, we can use these characters. They could be good spin-out franchises of their own. Oh, so, wow. Oh, man. Kind of... I hadn't
1: even thought about that. I mean, yeah, I feel like we missed, like, to your point, I feel like we missed an entire, like, training montage of uh, Saw Gerrera kind of, like, you know, admonishing Jin Erso as she's, like, you know, trying to get her whatever soldier... Uh, skills up and, um, and they, you know, kind of develop this father daughter relationship in, in the absence of Galen. And all you see is kind of like this hint of that when they meet again and it feels very disjointed, but there's clearly, and not only from kind of things we've seen in the trailer, but just from kind of what we see on screen in the finished product, there's clearly a deeper relationship there that is maybe, I guess, for time constraints, or maybe the plot got too unwieldy and they just had to cut it for that reason. But there's something there. And yes, I I mean, it wouldn't surprise me uh, as well if we saw something come out of this. But good God, I mean, really? I mean, this is kind of like a a spinoff of a spinoff. And now another spinoff? I mean... Look, the film is beautiful. This is an a, a just an amazingly beautiful film. This is sacrilege, but I'll just go here. I'm known on this podcast for kind of being more of a Trekkie than a Star Wars guy. And so, you know, I've said many blasphemous things in the past about Star Wars, but I have to ask you, Kofi, Kofi outlaw, do we need more Star Wars? Is this is this okay? I mean, is okay, we know we're going to get 8, where we're going to get the um uh Oh God, Lando Calrissian story I think it is But I mean, is this okay with you? Are you good with this? I mean, what's your view on just this whole Okay, now we're going to get one every year, basically
0: I'm I'm okay with it I like Star Wars I'm not like one of these people uh, Who needs only every three years For it to be this huge event But I think what needs to happen Is, and what is going to happen It's just people make the same mistakes All over and over again So just like Marvel had to learn In phase one, in phase two, Right? they kind of had to learn to balance the shared universe stuff with telling complete standalone stories because people weren't happy with like the ones that got kind of stretched between those two objectives like Thor or Iron Man Two people were having backlash. And so they had to rethink the game plan and kind of say, okay, we got to figure out how to do the shared universe stuff, but keep it still standalone, right? So then you started to get movies like Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which is both a sequel. It has all this MCU transition stuff, but it's still a great standalone movie. And it doesn't try to call back to Avengers too hard or be like Avengers too hard or be like the first Captain America too hard. It's its own thing. It's completely different, yet still feels familiar. And I think they need to commit. Lucasfilm needs to commit to that. It's clear to me, at least, that Rogue One was something different Expectations for it were probably different before Force Awakens came along and made $2 billion <laughs> and that probably or or was starting to be projected as this huge thing and that probably changed things. Uh, and now you had to kind of infuse more of this new Star Wars branding into it and that's where you get all the Force references and – but um, I think that need they need to let go of that. Like if you're going to start to do spinoffs and true standalone stories, first of all, they got to be standalone – this movie does a lot. I mean, this movie is called a standalone, but if you don't haven't seen a new hope, which is weird, like if you haven't seen a new hope, there's a lot in this movie you might be confused about.
1: Hmm. Like
0: and and what's going on. And this is supposed to in really in a real new Star Wars chronology, you're supposed to watch one, two, three, and then this movie. If you're just doing movies, one, two, three, then this movie, then a new hope. So you should be able to watch this movie and not have these questions that's an incredible point i hadn't
1: thought about that i mean yeah if you for whatever reason you know just you are just a heathen a sci-fi heathen and you haven't seen the original film the first star wars at least chronology you know chronologically the first star wars it it does kind of it's it doesn't really make sense that the end is what it is and then i wow this is really blowing my mind because i'm thinking if you watch the film rogue one standalone assuming you've never seen any other star wars film that would probably be deeply uh disappointing um to come to the end and think okay that was pretty badass and we're going to talk about the 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 dark side badassery uh, in a second but that was a pretty badass sequence and that's it okay who's this wait who's this person uh, okay that's that's the end really like yeah i mean that it makes a huge assumption about the people coming to see this
0: yeah it does.
1: So let's see. I think the other thing to talk about is, I mean, we spent a bunch of time on Donnie Yen, very little time on Jin Erso. and I think that kind of is like another indication of kind of how this was a little bit like you know the, the story didn't really give us kind of like a really strong protagonist to kind of like you know relate to and kind of see ourselves in and go on the journey with. But the the upside is in a, in addition to uh, Churit, uh, aka Donnie Yen the Force-sensitive guy. We also, you know, got another character, K-2SO, which, for my money, is possibly... I don't know. This is my favorite character of the entire film. Um He's a robot, or it's a robot, and I think um the idea is that he's programmed in a way where he... Well, he's a former Imperial droid, so he was, I guess, a bad robot. <laughs> and... Now, I think he's messing pro- what you did there. Yeah, see you see what, what you I did, did there? Uh, and now he's, uh, I think the idea is he's programmed to, he has to say what he's actually thinking or, you know, quote unquote thinking. And it leads to these amazing dialogue exchanges between him and the humans. It will, the, and the other thing is he kills humans. I think this is kind of like weird to me. I feel like as we move on, and this is maybe getting too robot sci fi nerdy, but. You know, the idea of robots killing humans, you know, from the Terminator series was kind of looked at as this kind of, you know, mortal sin in the sci-fi universe, particularly with the laws of robotics from Asimov and everything, you know, that many sci-fi fans know. And so whenever a robot came, you know, up in a, in a film, if it went rogue or if it kind of like, you know, went off the rails with its programming or whatever, and it started harming humans, it was kind of viewed as this, this big, deal. And, and, you know, I'm probably getting too deep into this, but it just, it really stood out to me in Rogue One that, like, it was no big deal for this robot, which is, I guess, in many ways, you know, for many people in that Star Wars universe, he's just another tool. But he's also, I mean, you know, these robots are treated, you know, like humans. R2-D2 was treated like a human. That was the thing that really stood out to me uh, in the original series. And so, I mean, the fact that he's just killing humans, just left and right, no big deal. And then he dies. That was the other thing. Again, spoilers. We're in spoilers territory, people. When he dies, it's not like... I mean, the two humans who he's kind of like uh, going on the mission with, th- there's a moment where it, it seems at least one of them gets a little misty, like a human actually died. I mean... Is this? Or do you, do you think I'm getting too nerdy with the with the robot politics here? I mean, do you understand what I'm, uh,
0: where I'm going? Yeah, I mean, you ha- you're just blowing my mind too because I never really thought about it. Uh, I mean, aside from that droid bounty hunter guy who was in uh, Boba Fett's crew in Empire Strikes Back. Oh right,
1: right, right, right. Like right. I
0: don't know too many droids except for the droid army and you know, obviously the prequels. But uh, yeah, you would think that's one thing they took away is the ability to kind of kill. But is I think he was a security droid or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. But, I mean, the thing is, it's like talking about the droid army.
1: It's like I think the idea or at least the assumption many of us make is, okay, these guys were programmed almost like drones, like the drones we have in real life right now. Like, okay, kill target. You're a mindless drone. You will, you know, go for the mission you've been programmed for. But the idea that you have this kind of self-realized robot who has, quote-unquote, emotions and opinions and political stances and a little bit of humor – but also will kill a human. I don't know. Like that's something that kind of, it, I just didn't expect that. And I feel like that's kind of, there's something in there to dig into, uh, whether it's in the Star Wars series or just in science fiction in general. There's some, there's more there. So talking about filmmaking, just in terms of just the visuals and, you know, just how they took us from place to place. And I mean, what was there anything that kind of, I mean, Gareth Edwards, I feel is, I mean, he hasn't done anything, at least in my opinion. I mean, you may disagree. If, you know, up till now, he hasn't done anything that's like just amazing, you know, to the point where you're like, Oh my God, how did he do that? But he does have this really great hand in terms of like the, the, the cinematic paintbrush, you know, mixing colors and shadow and kind of hinting at things coming, you know, from this direction and, and kind of almost using that as another character, light and color and shadow. Um, just on a filmmaking perspective, like what would you think from that perspective?
0: I think at this point it's kind of become obvious that, I mean, I now let me just preface by saying I loved monsters too. I was a really big fan of that film. I agree with you about how he used in a lot of kind of light and shadow and amazingly enough talking to him, that was just him going down, you know, to South America with just a camera in his hand and following around Scoot McNary and that girl who later got married, by the way. Mm. Uh, and literally just following him around and watching them fall in love and, like, shooting it and then throwing in some monster effects on his computer later. So, I mean, all that – a lot of that stuff he did was just using the natural light and space and all that stuff, which made that film more amazing to me. But uh, when it came out, I talked to him at New York Comic Con, and we talked for a long time. He went over. He just told the people, says, like, you know, screw it. And we just talked sci-fi. And he talked about, you know, what he likes from sci-fi. And I could tell that there's – and I was just kind of joking with him, like, do you think there's still a space in that? And I think we even referenced Star Wars or something and him loving that and growing up with it. About for the kind of sci-fi that makes you think versus the new entertainment value sci-fi with if we get 30 different, look, you know, weird looking aliens and some cool space battles. Like we've all we've covered all the bases versus something like you, a Trekkie, might love. Well, that makes that's kind of thought provoking. And I think in both his big budget films, Godzilla and Star Wars, I worry that there's this hint that he's this kind of one kind of he is a monsters filmmaker mm. and keeps getting kind of chewed up in the studio system i feel like maybe i don't know any of this it's just my instincts as a long time you know entertainment journalist of or blogger whatever you want to call it is that like yeah he's a guy who keeps trying to tell one kind of story but after a bunch of studio feedback and notes we get this other kind of story Because both films, Rogue One and Godzilla, have these kind of weird pacing issues, right? Hmm. They're both kind of bottom-heavy, where the build-up to get to these epic finishes isn't so great and people don't like it. But then the finishes – he kind of finishes out strong with these epic action sequences and things like that, that people come around and and kind of gives people at least the money shot they wanted. Godzilla puking Atomic Flame down that – thing's mouth and beating the crap out of it or rogue one with everybody getting killed and fighting this huge battle. So I, I just worry that it's not so much him. It's what film he's trying to make versus what the studio wants. And he may not be a studio director. And this may be a process of figuring that out.
1: Yeah. When I look back at monsters, um, yeah, I really agree with what you just said because monsters, there are, it's very slow in many parts of that film, but you can tell it seems like a more sure hand you can tell the director knows what he wants to do and it seems very deliberate whereas with like you said Godzilla and now Rogue One there is kind of this weird the rhythm seems to be off like it, there are like sure parts and kind of like okay let's just get this done part and then it goes back to kind of like a very sh- you know sure hand so yes yeah, so i i hope that's not the case but um I, I mean look just kind of bringing it all kind of back together i think People are satisfied. I think he did a good job. I think um, it could have been much worse. You know, there were some very, there were big fears about trying to do a standalone film. And we don't know any of these characters. Uh, I'm just going to say this one more time, just in case you didn't hear before spoilers saying everyone dies, pretty much everyone dies in this film. And so if we do have kind of a spinoff of this film, that's going to, what makes that troublesome to me is that will have to be a prequel of a prequel of a prequel, <laughs> I mean, it's like that they're going to have to go time traveling back yet again and resurrect these people after we've seen them all die. I mean, there may be a few, maybe a couple of rebel soldiers survived. I mean, I don't, I can't really remember any
0: major characters who survived. I think everyone died, right? Um, pretty much all the major characters die. Yes, right, including the X wing general by, played by Ben Davis. So let's
1: talk about the scene that, for me i don't care about look you, whatever the whatever happened with the characters, whatever happened with the plot uh however the film looked up until this moment, whatever I mean, whatever I think about Star Wars franchise for me, this was worth everything, and that is Darth Vader boarding that ship and in my opinion delivering on the promise of Darth Vader that we have had for decades that you know in the universe of star wars as you as you mentioned. There's kind of like this mythic sense of what Jedis and, and I guess, uh, Sith masters can do and what people can do with the force. And just this, I mean, this scene finally delivers, okay, why is everyone so terrified? I mean, a a choke, okay, that's scary. The voice, that's scary. The dark uniform, okay, that's scary. Uh, he'll lay waste to an entire planet. Scary, yes. But personally, why is Darth Vader himself so terrifying? And this scene, I'm just going to describe the scene. So they're trying to, it's toward the end of the film. And they're trying to get the, I guess, the schematics of the death, death Star out. They're trying to escape with those schematics. And Darth Vader boards the ship. And one of the rebel soldiers hears kind of a sound. And then they all stop, look around. And they just look down this hallway uh, that's just, you know, covered in shadow. And what breaks the shadow is his breathing, you know, his you know, his iconic breathing apparatus, and then his red lightsaber comes into play, and he just begins to walk down the hallway and use this combination of force power and swordsmanship to not just dispatch—I think it was like almost a dozen soldiers—but you can see the terror in these in their face. I mean, these guys are terrified, and. You know, the combination of the action, what we already know about the force, the music, the very, ah, 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 which is like, I love that. That just, (laughs) that just really, that just took it to the next level for me. And, you know, and the guy just barely escaping with the plans. I mean, I just, I don't know. For me, I, I felt like, okay, now I get why Darth Vader is so scare scary and why everyone is so terrified and, I mean, you know, just aside from him being like a badass military person or whatever, if this is what if these are the stories that have spread throughout the universe, that this particular scene, then I get it.
0: Yeah, no. Some people have actually had a problem with this scene sequence, if I, you can believe it. Because I did not know
1: that. Please explain.
0: They OK. Well, the argument goes that, you know, um, and I hear this argument, it's that Darth Vader rarely pops his lightsaber. He only pops it to. For like worthy fights, right?
1: Pops his lifesaver. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, like he doesn't he doesn't pop it for just anybody. It, he pops it to fight other Jedi or or worthy combatants, and therefore a, a ship full of Rebel soldiers shouldn't w- was beneath him. That if you watch in that if you watch a New Hope, when he blows open Princess Leia's ship, he doesn't go through and just slaughter everybody. What does he do? He sends the stormtroopers in, right? Right. And lets them do it, and then he just kind of walks in because he's the commander and it's like, "All right, you got this cleaned up, you know, maybe strangle one person, and then it's like, "All right, where is she?" <laughs> and that therefore this should be. I don't feel that way, I mean, I don't feel that way. I think that end scene aside from being I think people get caught up because it's a it is a cool fan service sequence that are even though the logic of it is stretched in the same way that you know yoda popping a lightsaber to fight count dooku in <laughs> attack of the clones might have been a little bit of a stretch one because, of the
1: most hilarious scenes in the entire saga just after this yeah
0: and, but when it came out people were like ooing and awing in the theater they love that shit the yoda fight sequence and the one in darsidius and in, in chapter three which i understood the one and three but in the one and two i'm like yoda would yoda wouldn't pop a lightsaber he has like real force powers Couldn't he just take this guy on with those like, you know, Yoda being a Kung Fu master is unnecessary because the whole point of Yoda is that he's small, diminutive, but he has this massive power through accessing the force, not through his own, you know, physical strength or anything like that. Right. Um, And so Darth Vader, I could understand the logic of that. But yeah, it was a cool last moment. So I'm not going to hate on it. And, uh, yeah, and if you want more of that, if you haven't been watching the animated series, like, if you want to see pre-Darth Vader and how badass Anakin Skywalker is, watch the, especially the later seasons of Clone Wars. Yeah, you know, uh, I,
1: I keep getting told that I need to watch this series, the Clone oh, you
0: Wars. Oh, Wait, 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 wait. Time <laughs> out. You haven't watched <laughs> Clone here Wars? here we go.
1: See, this is what I'm talking about. As a Trekkie, I follow all the Trekkie, including animated bits. I, I'm sorry, man. There's too much. To, I, look, okay, I'll, here's the reason. The animation style is just not great to me. I don't like, like, literally the way it's drawn. It just looks like one of those, and I'm not going to mention the country because I don't want to sound like I'm dissing a particular country, but there's a country that churns out a lot of cheap animation uh, in the last 10 years. And it looks like one of those cheapo kind of just, up. Uh, We're just going to push this out and all the real work goes into the lore and the story. But the animation style is just I I can't do it, man. Can't do
0: it. Oh, you got I mean, it took me a while to get used to the animation style, too. I won't lie, but you got to do it because, yeah, that's where you get the real great Star Wars stuff. Like, why was Anakin Skywalker this mythic general that everybody talks about and worships? is kind of explained by that show. You see him go out on the actual wartime missions with Obi-Wan and Padme, and that explains their whole... like. And it also helps to flesh out that terrible relationship with Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman in the prequels. Mm. Like, in Clone Wars, you begin to see why Padme is attractive to Anakin and vice versa, because they're kind of both badasses who break... They're rebels. They break the rules and do things to kind of win the Clone Wars um, that don't necessarily fall within the Republic or the Jedi Order. Not bad stuff, but you know what I mean? They're like... We can't do it because it's a diplomatic, you know, hang up. And they're like, F that. And they get in the ship and they go and they save the day. Um, but you also get to see all that. And uh, later on in Rebels, and I say once you get to the Rebels series, the next one, you get Darth Vader is like a Michael Myers of that series because there are two young, there's an untrained Jedi and his young kind of half ass Padawan. And while they have more power than, say, like, you know, stormtroopers and Imperial troops when darth vader gets called in it's it's nightmare time so right, right. In and in the season two finale there is a great episode with darth vader where at a sith temple versus where it's like darth maul darth vader these two jedi and it's it's really epic you got to watch that stuff okay I, okay so this is okay i'll it's, give it another it's, shot it's, yeah it gives you more of that what the ending of this movie gives to movie fans like the animated series will show you much more of that of like Yeah, when Darth Vader was the most powerful force in the universe besides the Emperor, like, yeah, shit was scary. So talking about people who are maybe dissatisfied
1: with some parts of this, let's come to the end. Like, what did you think about how this kind of... And see, I think I'm a bit confused and maybe you can help me. I was under the assumption that when he, you know, chases them and he barely misses them and they they get off with the plans and he's standing there kind of at this uh, ledge, you know, I guess a force field is like covering the opening or whatever. But he basically looks like he's standing on the edge of, edge of space. My kind of fuzzy brain just thought, oh, OK, now he's going to go back into the ship. And the next scene we see, if memory serves, is uh, Princess Leia. You know, someone kind of de- delivering Princess Leia the news, but to my mind, to my fuzzy brain, uh, you know, not, you know, entirely steeped in all of the lore and all the details. I had this idea that he was going back into the ship and then he was going to go, I don't know, to floor three, ding, <laughs> and like arrive on her floor and then kind of confront her. But I think the idea is that no, like later they find another ship and that's how he catches up to her. Like I feel like I'm confused about that ending.
0: I think it's meant to just be like those are the Rogue One ends in the basically the opening moments of A New Hope like he's going to go they lost the plans but they're not out of his sight you know what I mean right he knows where they are he just has to go downstairs get into another ship and get after it and that's basically what he's doing
1: right but I mean when he so no so that's how I saw it I saw it as connecting Rogue One to A New Hope but the scene in A New Hope where she's confronted by darth
0: vader in context with this that is that's not on the same ship right uh no i think it is the ship she escapes on is the the one if i remember correctly it is that little ship that almost oh, looks okay so the, it, oh so it, the yeah. ship
1: that got away is, is the one that's is carrying the, Leia. That gets, oh, yeah that okay. gets
0: boarded yeah and the one he boards in the beginning
1: gotcha, gotcha. yeah
0: they don't get far
1: <laughs> okay okay now okay i did not know that see there you go I think that was a little confusing for people who do have kind of like a a vague, distant memory of the uh, of a new hope. Um, So let's get into it. I mean, this is uh, aside from kind of the way Peter Cushing was treated earlier in terms of digital recreation and I guess CGI and human puppetry. I mean, if you want to comment on that, fine. But for me, the big deal was how they treated Carrie Fisher. Uh, a.k.a. Uh, Princess Leia at the end, having uh the guy come in to kind of deliver the news about what's going on with the plans and, you know, where we're at. And she turns around and I have to tell you, I wasn't convinced for a millisecond. It looked like a digital puppet. It, it actually looked in some ways worse than some of the game trailers, which are incredibly well done in terms of uh, you know realism and making you know characters look human that are just completely digital. It looked like a game trailer, but actually not like one of the best. I mean, did that convince you? Where
0: did it Did it break the film for you in any way? I'm kind of split. I'm uh, for me, I say uh, the Tarkin thing worked for me, but the Leia thing did not. That is my official take on it. Uh, the Leia thing, like you said, it was too much like a Tupac hologram or something like that. You know what I mean? Like. Okay. It's kind of cool, but also kind of creepy in a way. And now it's even worse as of right now today, because now it it, it, uh, they of course they never, ever meant this to happen. But now the movie's been released so close to her death, it is just this first kind of eternal. It's just like a marker that she died and she's gone. And all we have is this ghost, this weird CGI ghost now. It was like one thing when they did it because they had to de-age somebody, you know, de-age her because Carrie Fisher's older. But now she's gone, and like it is it's just like, well, she's dead, but we're going to bring her back with this weird CGI ghost, which is not what happened. It's it at all. It's they were not that tactless or anything, but like here we are. Yeah, yeah. That's just the way it plays. If anybody goes out to see Rogue One today, tomorrow, whatever, you know, it's going to play a lot differently. So it didn't really work, but I understand why it had to be done, and it was. Again, this was a movie that arguably is overloaded with fan service moments and this was one they had to do for sure have you seen westworld have are you up to speed oh homie i am a westworld (laughs) fanatic i've been in since episode one i'm always up on the hbo shows okay so
1: this is what kind of really confused me because i felt like okay we it seems like in terms of special effects we're kind of almost there and in westworld we have these flashback scenes with uh anthony hopkins as well sorry spoilers for westworld uh, we have uh, flashback scenes of Anthony Hopps- Hopkins as a young man, and I really – it was incredibly convincing. I could not tell that anything was amiss. It really looked like spot on. And then we get the Carrie Fisher treatment in Rogue One, which to me looks like something that I would have seen maybe five years ago. So I don't know if this is kind of like a production timeline thing or – also, there's something about Carrie Fisher, and maybe this might offend some people – uh, I don't think it's offensive. I feel like she kind of has like one of those, um, oh God, uh, Mona Lisa, kind of like a Mona Lisa face where it's like very, a very simple face, but there's a very subtle, unique quality to her face that makes it hard to get right if you try to kind of like fake it. Whereas with, uh, Peter Cushing's face, I felt I feel like his face is very harsh, angular, very kind of, there's just something about his face that I can, I'm, I'm able to more easily believe. Or allow my eye to trick itself that I'm seeing what I'm not, you know, what's not really going on. Whereas with her face, she has a very kind of – there's a very unique quality to her face where you have to – if you don't get it just right, it, it breaks the reality. So you're saying you're you're split on it, but it didn't break the film for you.
0: No, I mean it was just – I mean it was a weird moment. You knew that it was fake, but it didn't like break the film. It was like, ah, they tried. They went for it. Yeah, It didn't really work. And it's because – like you said, um, they got a guy I think his name is Guy Henry from a UK soap opera show to play uh, to play Tarkin, and he he also has a very kind of angular face with a kind of big not to insult anybody but the wide head that kind of comes down to the sharp point in the chin, and he has a kind of sunken eyes too. So that I could see how they morphed that, and also they had Tarkin on these kind of more dimly lit spaceship stations in space, right? Whereas the Leia thing is like full on, like take a look at this beauty, and, right? You know, uh, <laughs> And plus, people are more, our eyes are just, for whatever, we are naturally inclined to just kind of pick out the details of a woman's face in a, in a different kind of way than we are for a male's face, because we're critiquing, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, well, and just, and on a CGI level, just to go back to what you were saying about the, the lighting, it was almost like they were like, ha, look at this. Like, it was almost arrogant to, like, just, we can show you this this CGI character in a brightly lit, full white room, and... You won't be able to tell the difference. And I think it was just maybe a little bit arrogant that they thought they could do that. But, you know, thankfully, it comes at the end. So, you know, if you enjoyed the movie up until that point, I feel like that's kind of part of why it doesn't break it. Um, the shadow, again, you know, helped the other characters. So that was good. Um, oh, yeah, All in all, I, I thought it was a pleasant surprise. I thought it was kind of uh, better than I hoped to be honest, because um, most of the actors I'm only, you know, I have passing familiarity with other than, um, of course, Forrest Whitaker and Mads Mikkelsen. I thought they did a great job. I think it it lives up to the, the Star Wars canon. Um, I mean, speaking of the Star Wars canon, I mean, what do you think about this, the selection for Han Solo and just the existence, the the, you know, the decision to even go into this world of Han Solo?
0: Well, I can't say too much about it because I unofficially bear part of the blame for this whole Han Solo mess, I think.
1: Oh, God. Wait, break it down. What do you mean?
0: Um, If you go back and search Screen Rant and it's been redone, there's an article called like uh, five or ten Star Wars spinoffs we want to see that I wrote up right after Lucasfilm was purchased by Disney. And in that article, I actually wrote up. This is real. Like I actually wrote up a Han Solo origin. One of my ideas was a Han Solo origin movie. Okay, that was basically going to be when Han met Chewie and it was going to be a comedy movie uh, about Han Solo and Chewie kind of first meeting as these two very different people who kind of form this odd couple. And I thought it would be have to be a comedic heist film like them uniting to kind of pull off some kind of heist. And how comedically wrong that goes at first. And I said that they should it should be a twenty one jump street style movie with like Phil Lord and Chris Miller involved in it. Because that's the only way I saw it, that I thought it could work. And that's kind of exactly what happened. <laughs>
1: wow. I, I mean I like I just hearing that idea. I love the idea. So wait a minute. I, do we, I, I remember, like, listening to you on on that podcast and sometimes you guys would jokingly say, you know, oh, okay, I'm available for uh, studio work, guys, you know. But honestly, let's just get into industry talk for one second. I mean, has anyone ever reached out to you? Because you guys, I mean, I remember you would come up with some great ideas of kind of like, here's how this franchise or this movie idea that's being tossed around could be flipped in the most geek friendly fan friendly or just just story friendly way i mean has anyone
0: reached out to you are you getting any credit for this no 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 we never got any credit or any paychecks for it <laughs> okay all right. we just had a a couple of ideas go through like rob keys helped get the whole deadpool thing going mm-hmm. yeah he started the why not deadpool kind of hashtag yeah there's a lot of things we just did that unofficially you know Nobody ever wants to acknowledge because then they'd have to pay us. Right. Yeah. That, that wouldn't work. So
1: Donald Glover, are you happy with that casting? Have you seen his work on Atlanta? I know I, I heard you uh, in the past speak about him on a uh, community and I was a fan of community, but I mean, now he's doing Atlanta, which is kind of like this almost like. I don't even want – I'll let you maybe give a descriptor on that. But, I mean, he's – he's this is his moment. So how would you feel about that casting?
0: At first I thought it was just kind of like, oh, of course you get Donald Glover, like, uh, to do the Lando thing, to do the Billy Dee Williams kind of impression. But then I did watch Atlanta this season, and my respect for that guy has gone up, like, you know, tenfold because, you know, I thought he was fine on community, and I wasn't really – I'm not really a childish Gambino fan or anything like that. Um, even yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't like his delivery style. We—that's a whole hip hop conversation. But seems um, a little
1: too self-conscious. I don't, I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah, he sounds way too angry to be Donald Glover rap. You know, I'm like, yeah. dude, I, I get it, but you're also Donald Glover. Like, rap, be do some Eminem shit, like have fun with it. Right. Exactly. Uh, this whole growling kind of screaming at us. Yeah, that's okay, man. Right, right. But um, getting back to it, like after seeing Atlanta and seeing what he can do like really stretch his wings comedically and how kind of smart he is and observe it like i think he's going to do a good job and be a fun part and plus i think also there are some episodes of uh the rebels cartoon series that have lando and those are those are wonderful things when you see kind of like who lando is outside of the original trilogy him being this just kind of smooth talking guy who always has a scheme that he's running, even though he's being very sweet and polite, he's also hustling you is really great. Okay. Yeah. There's like a whole episode of, I believe it is rebels and not clone wars that, uh, no, it's rebels where he kind of seduces the, uh, the kind of hard-ass leader of the Rebels is this female pilot who's in Rogue One, actually, Captain Sandula. They mention her, and her ship is in the big battle scene at the end. That's a little Easter egg mm-hmm. for uh, Star Wars fans, yeah. And it's so now, cap-
1: is that film coming 2018? Do we know what, when that's Pebbles? coming?
0: The, well, the Lando. Um, oh, Han Wando- was 2018, yeah. Okay. I don't know if there's a specific date. I forget. Um, but uh, yeah, it's coming 2018. But uh, I think Glover's going to be good. And I think he'll be good as just kind of a slick, smooth-talking Lando who helps. You-, you know, he's kind of the Ocean's – in an Ocean's Eleven style kind of way of being a George Clooney type, like I said, smooth-talker.
1: So it's a Han Solo movie and Donald Glover is in it,
0: just happens to be in it. Um, yeah, it's a Han Solo movie. Uh, right now the principal cast is that – i'm rick guy who i can't ever say his name who was in hail caesar and in that terrible ya witch movie which i also can't remember mm-hmm. um so yeah he's not in a known name playing han solo but that's kind of a good thing because you need an unknown to step into that harrison ford role right. um yeah it'll be true about be how han and chewy kind of met up as younger people pulling this kind of heist um Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones is in it. I don't know who she is, but she's going to probably be a feisty female kind of counterpart to Han Solo, I'd imagine. And Donald Glover's in it as young Lando. I think those are the major cast members right now. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what they're going to go into because there is a lot of that crazy Han Solo backstory stuff about being a prince of – uh whatever system, yeah, I forget the name of the system he's from. This is coming what year? Uh 2018. Okay, so do we have one coming in 2017? Uh yeah, we had of episode episode
1: 8. Okay, so that's episode 8. That's what I thought. Okay, so this is really happening. This is every year we're getting a Star Wars movie. So far so good. Um The Force Awak- Awakens was not only a hit but widely praised even though, you know, there was some kind of You know, at least some felt there were derivative, kind of repetitive aspects Uh, in the film. It was, you know, I I thought it was a good film. I enjoyed it. Rogue One, great job. Uh, And um, so, do we know anything about what's
0: coming in 2017? Do do you have the name for that? We do not have any name. And I was kind of surprised they didn't use Rogue One for at least a teaser and a name reveal. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they don't typically – I mean they didn't do a Rogue One trailer with Force Awakens, so I'm not surprised about that. But I'm surprised we didn't get at least the subtitle for Episode eight. Right. Uh We still don't know that. I'm sure they have a whole Disney unveiling plan for that next year. But uh, yeah, we don't know. The only things we know right now are kind of loose little vague tidbits about the plot of Episode Eight. nothing even really to talk about. We know Luke will be in it more, and you know, yeah. Right, right. And we'll get our last Leia performance from Carrie Fisher, and uh. Kylo Ren's back. So, and we'll see uh, Snoke in real life. And that's pretty much all I know about it right now. Are you on board with the Snoke is um, Samuel L. Jackson theory? No. <laughs> okay. All right. I guess people have said Snoke is like everybody. Right, right. Snoke has been Grand Moff Tarkin, Mace Windu, the Emperor. Uh what's his name? Thrawn, Admiral Thrawn, who's now part of the canon because of rebels. Um yeah. Yeah, they've said it. I just at this point, like I don't even know if there's gonna be a reveal that's good enough, so just make him a new character. Right.
1: And so uh it hadn't occurred to me this isn't the last we're seeing of Carrie Fisher. We will see her again, likely um in 2017 in the next Star Wars film. And, you know, when I think about her, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like she was kind of one of the early, at least modern um, actresses who or actors who maybe foreshadowed where we're at now with feminism and just women being on screen and being able to kind of. Uh, allowed, not able, but allowed to hold their own and to kind of you know go back and forth, kind of like um, Sigourney Weaver. Like in terms of if we're yes. just thinking, yeah, if we're just thinking about star, uh, uh, sci-fi in the '70s and '80s, I feel like it was kind of Sigourney Weaver and Carrie Fisher.
0: No, I was gonna say like I, when she passed away, when I was writing up things about it, one of the first things that did jump into my mind is just like I had a longer list, but then I forgot most of it. But yeah, the two biggest standouts were. There was this weird, amazing period in the late 70s, early 80s, where sci-fi in particular really just broke ground by putting female actors at the forefront of these stories and, and not making them like princesses and intergalactic princesses searching for a prince. Like they were badass female characters, Princess Leia, Ripley. And like I said, there were, I had some others. I got to dig up a list and see how much of a trend I can make out of this. But um, yeah, and it, it was – sci-fi breaking that ground is sci-fi tends to when star trek had like the first interracial kiss on tv right right and so like yeah good for sci-fi and good for actors like and it's and it's what's funny is it it was done by guys who were at the same time rebelling against the studio system in the late 70s george lucas and james cameron and wanted to invent their own things and as they these innovator people came along they also brought with them this idea of of the kind of badass feminine action hero which like you said is pretty much a huge kind of subgenre of the marketplace now right so yeah i mean carrie fisher was definitely at the forefront of that not just on screen but it's important to say like off screen she was too um she was very outspoken and and had very fine strong feminist ideals she was kind of very i always hate to use this term ballsy but uh for women but uh, or very for fortitude if if you will right. Right. um ballsy about being very forthright about you know who she was and her demons and her problems and writing about things like her drinking and stuff, and using that to kind of start very honest and frank discussions um yeah, she was just a uh, she was a powerhouse and she was a creative powerhouse i mean this lady acted, directed, she wrote plays, um, she wrote books, she was a secret script doctor for so many things, including lucas's films and like the prequels she helped doctor all those scripts and improve them uh yeah so she was just a a dynamic force and and uh really kind of set that bar for for what female action heroes can be and like the whole idea of a princess right this was no disney princess this princess picked up a blaster and and blasted people uh yeah that's a big thing in terms of thinking about you know what we look for before you know we looked for a Princess Leia in a Ripley, you know, that's attractive to us and how that is different than other kind of depictions of women before that is very important. So, yeah, she's an icon, man. And as I said, in Force Awakens, she'll always be royalty to us. You yeah. know,
1: Carrie Fisher definitely leaves a legacy, a strong legacy, feminism, uh, artistic, I guess, risk taking and, and being bold in Hollywood and outspoken. Also on the um topic of mental health, which is something that, you know a lot of people today kind of the stigma has finally fallen off and they're allowed to kind of talk about a little bit more openly. Uh, Carrie Fisher dead at 60. But we look forward to seeing her next year in the next installment of Star Wars. So before we go, I just want to make sure that people know where you're at, what you're doing now. So you're at comicbook.com and you're a senior editor there?
0: I'm at comicbook.com where we have a much bigger staff. So I'm actually senior editor of original content and uh, basically just helping to uh, give you guys and geeks something fun to read. And yeah, come up with some uh, good ideas and keep things talking, chatting and uh, interesting.
1: And I also noticed you changed your Twitter handle from the cryptic uh letter uh dis, you know distribution to and and you you used to have this thing on your on the uh Screen Ramp podcast where you would kind of like I don't know what those were easter eggs or riddles You would give out these weird Twitter handles. Maybe they were, I think they were
0: other people's (laughs) Twitter handles. Yeah, they were other. They were usually other people's Twitter handles that were randomly tangentially related to like what we were talking about. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay.
1: Do you want to give out your Twitter, your actual Twitter handle?
0: Um yes. Well, since, you know, since that time I was trying to keep some anonymity back then, but uh apparently there's a whole generation of people who are Twitter famous these days and have all kinds of careers and I was just like, oh, maybe I should uh, you know, get into that. So, I've just changed and come out of the shadows and I have my real Twitter handle with Allah which is my real name, no gimmicks. Uh, so you can find me at Kofi Outlaw, K O F I O U T L A W.
1: Yeah, that just occurred to me. This is the Strange Outlaw episode, so you guys, nice. <laughs> you guys can note that uh, out there listening. Um, so yeah, so comicbook.com, dot Kofi Outlaw. I really appreciate you joining us. This has been, you know, I've listened to you for years. Um, I missed your voice. It is a true treat and pleasure to have you on the Mars Magazine podcast. And I'm really happy that, especially on this day, you took a bit, uh, a moment to join us.
0: Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for having me. It's, uh, yeah, it's been very welcoming. And uh, yeah, you've shown me so much more love than I ever allow myself in the mirror. So that's, <laughs> that's good. Uh, and it's been good to just talk to you and talk some Star Wars. Even on this tragic day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, this will be the final podcast of 2016, but we will see you in 2017. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Google Play. Uh, you can listen to us on TuneIn. Um, we're, we're pretty much all over the place on Twitter. We're Mars Magazine at Mars Magazine. And you can maybe dig into a little bit more of what we do on MarsMagazine.com. Uh, this has been a Dario. Strange, and we will see you in the future.